this evening and open them to the book of Zechariah, chapter 8, and verse 16. Just to um, remind you where we are in the book of Zechariah, we have uh, completed the introductory call to repentance, and then we went through the eight night visions, um, culminating in the crowning of the priest. Joshua, which typifies Jesus. And then from there we moved into part three. We might, we might finish part three tonight. It's, someone started laughing when I said that. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, the question, question and answer section where a question comes in to Zechariah related to fasting. And as we're going to see tonight, they were fasting over the destruction of the temple. And so now that the temple was being rebuilt, the question is, should we keep fasting? And God, through Zechariah, takes the opportunity to give four oracles. The first one is the oracle against empty ritualism, where they were mourning the effect and not the covenant violations that led to the destruction of the temple. And then speaking of covenant violations, the second oracle, Zechariah kind of um, rakes them over the coals for all of the you know violations of God's covenant that they were involved in, which led to the temple's destruction. Then you get to chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, and it's sort of a happier section where there's prophecies of Jerusalem's restoration. You see that prediction made in verses 1 through 8, and then comes an application, verses 9 through 17. And so in that third oracle, we have covered all of it except the... um, exhortation or application to obey the covenant. So what are they supposed to do with the information? They're supposed to rebuild the temple, verses 9 through 13. Trust in God's promises, verses 14 and 15, by not fearing. And then they're supposed to obey the covenant, verses 16 and 17, because disobeying the covenant 70 years earlier is what got them into trouble. And that's why their temple was destroyed. So we've covered all of this, except we just have verses 16 and 17 um, to cover. So take a look, if you could, at chapter 8, verse 16, as he tells them to go back to the covenant. He says, these, this is application, these things which you should do. So you'll notice it's not just a bunch of pie-in-the-sky stuff. It's knowledge of the future impacts daily life. 
or else knowledge of the future is of not not much value. So these things which you should do, and he starts to list the things. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. So what are they supposed to do as they go back to the covenant? They are supposed to speak the truth. Um, One of the Ten Commandments as part of the Mosaic Covenant is you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And God is very interested in his community being truth tellers. We shouldn't be people of falsehoods and deception. Um, Sometimes when you get around fellow pastors... There's a tendency amongst pastors to sort of exaggerate the size of their churches. We call that evangelistically speaking. (laughs) Or exaggerate their impact. And very sadly that can happen and we shouldn't do that. We should be, you know, just be honest. Ephesians 4, this is the church age now, verse 25, says, Therefore, ridding yourselves of falsehood, speak truth to one another, or each one of you with his neighbor, because we are all parts of one another. So we ought to be truth tellers within the community of the believe, believing. There's something that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that gets overlooked in this regard. He says in Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37, Again you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, take no oath at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is the footstool of His feet, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you take an oath by your head, for you cannot make a single hair white or black. Now, I would differ with that. I think I can make my hair white by just getting old and being worried about everything. But make sure your statement is yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil origin. So what they were doing in this time period is they were saying, because their, their personal word was so unreliable, you know, to get people to believe that they were going to do something, they would say, I swear by the temple. I swear by Jerusalem. You know, today we say things like, I, I swear on my mother's grave, I'll do it. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying you shouldn't do that because your word should be so trustworthy anyway. Uh, you should be such a rely, we should be such reliable people that I don't have to swear by something greater than myself, you know, just to get people to, uh, think I'm gonna do something. So it fits with this whole, uh, subject of being truth tellers within the community of believers, especially because we're all parts of the same body. You know, we shouldn't be dishonest with each other. And he also says there in verse uh, 16, these things which you should speak, speak the truth to one another. And he says, judge 
uh, I'm sorry, speak the truth to one another, judge with truth and judgment. So we should also be people that judge. A lot of people say, well, don't judge. Well, that's kind of impossible to go through life without judging. When the Bible says don't judge, it's saying don't do it hypocritically. You know, don't take the, um, you know, splinter out of someone else's eye when you've got a log in your own eye. Um, you know, Al Capone shouldn't be giving lectures on how to live a crime-free life, you know, this kind of thing. So when you judge, make sure you're not you're not in a place of hypocrisy. And then we also don't judge people's motives and hearts because we can't see that. But other than that, we should be people of judgment. We should be discerners. In fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, The man who is spiritual makes judgments about all things. So there's really two verses in the Bible that unbelievers know, I've discovered. They know the passage about Jesus turning water to wine. And then they know the passage about don't judge. And we hear that all the time, don't judge. And there's actually a context there. What it's saying is don't judge hypocritically and don't judge people's motives. Other than that, we're to be people of judgment. We make this, you know, judgments and discernments all of the time, but you'll notice that we do it according to the truth. I don't just judge based on my preferences. I make judgments constantly based on God's revealed truth and his word. So in Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5, they were called to make judgments about prophets. They were called not to believe every prophet, but to judge the prophets. And if a particular prophet said, let's go follow other gods, then they were to make a judgment and understand that that was a false prophet because they're making a judgment by God's word when the first two commandments in the Ten Commandments say no no graven images and have no other gods before me. So if a prophet comes along, even if he performs a sign or wonder and says, hey, let's follow other gods, the community is to make a judgment. So that's the kind of idea that he's getting at there in verse 16. Judge with truth and judgment. And then he says at the very end of verse 16, for peace in your gates. In other words, we should be people of peace. We should promote justice or peace in the life of the community of believers. Uh, the word for peace is uh, shalom. So how do we promote peace in our midst? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 17. It says, also let no, none of you devise evil in your heart against one another. So what he's saying is stop plotting against each other. And he's going through all of the covenant violations that got them into trouble related to the destruction of the temple. These were all of the things that they were not repentant of in all of their rituals about fasting. So stop plotting against one another. And you'll notice the language there in verse 17, in your heart. Um, Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 10, you'll remember, deals with the heart. 
we brought it up when we were back in chapter 7. It says, Do not oppress the widow or the orphan or the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. So the problem with so much friction in the body of Christ is our hearts aren't right. And someone did us wrong, and so don't get mad, get even. And we spend all of this energy, you know, sort of plotting against each other. And Zechariah says you shouldn't do that. And he says if you're doing it in your heart, that's a sin. The book of Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, Watch your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And some versions put it this way, Watch your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. And so I had a pastor that put it this way one time. He said, private thoughts will eventually lead to public actions. So if we're plotting evil against each other, um, that's going to eventually break out somehow in some kind of um, inappropriate fraction, uh, fissure or fraction in the body of Christ. It either comes out as gossip you know, backstabbing, you know, that kind of thing. And so that's what Zechariah is telling the post-exilic community to stay away from. Um, Jesus, as you know, talked a lot about the heart. He said in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, uh, raka, empty head in other words, we might call someone an airhead, you know, in our day, you know, they're stupid, they're dumb, um, shall be answerable to the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And that's just sins in the heart. And I read things like this and I say, wow, I'm, I'm so glad I'm not going to be judged by the law because I would be the first person in into hell, most probably, given this standard. Then he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So these are the heart sins that the Bible deals with. And, you know, we read these radical statements by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And we think that Jesus sort of came up with all this stuff brand new. It's so radical. But you'll notice that Zechariah, uh, 500 years before the time of Christ, was talking about heart sins. It's right there in verse 17. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart. And going back another a thousand years, one of the Ten Commandments, I think it's commandment number ten, is thou shalt not covet. And coveting is sort of um, different than the other sins mentioned in the Ten Commandments because it's something you can do in your heart. Uh, without physically doing anything. 
In fact, coveting actually leads to committing many of the other sins mentioned in the Ten Commandments, like ultimately murdering, stealing, and that kind of thing. And the way to sort of understand an ancient Near Eastern list is to look at the first thing mentioned and or the last thing mentioned. And if you understand that, it kind of opens the uh, meaning of that ancient Near Eastern list. And I think the Tenth Commandment is thou shalt not covet because it's a heart sin. And what it's communicating there is all of these Ten Commandments sit in judgment on the heart. So my heart has committed sins that my hands haven't gotten around to yet. And the only one that knows that is the Lord. So you'll notice that it's not Jesus that invented this concept of heart sins. Jesus is just giving more amplification to it in the Sermon on the Mount. But it's as old as the book of Zechariah. Uh, It goes all the way back to Mount Sinai. So Jesus shows up and he says things like this. Do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. So Jesus, when he showed up, basically said, I'm not here to contradict the prophets. What I'm here to do is to give full expression um, to the prophets and the law. And one of the things he gave full expression to in the Sermon on the Mount was the, was heart sins. And yet heart sins is not, he's not the first person to condemn heart sins. He gave it the fullest meaning, but here it is in Zechariah about, you know, not, you know, causing contention in the body of Christ because you've got some sort of anger against somebody. Um, taking place in your heart. And then also in verse 17, he doesn't want them to commit perjury. Also let none of you devise evil in your heart against one another and do not love perjury. Perjury is lying. And of course, one of the Ten Commandments is Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. That's why there's so much in the Mosaic Law about having just weights and measurements. You know, where you, you know, chart, you weight, you weight it in a, in a, in, so it looks like they're purchasing something um, that's more expensive than it is. It's like selling your car your used car, but you you roll back the odometer and make it look like the car is newer than it really is. You know, there's there's fewer miles on the car than, than are actually there. That's the kind of thing that God is upset about um, concerning Israel and why they got put into the 70-year captivity. So they're not to perjure each other, commit perjury. And you'll notice the word love in front of perjury. It says, do not love perjury. So, notice again, Zechariah, just like Jesus, is dealing with the heart. Um, as I was looking at this expression here, don't love perjury, I couldn't help but thinking of Jeremiah 5, verses 30 and 31, which says, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. 
So that's a, quite an opening statement there. I mean, how would, maybe I'll open my sermon this Sunday by saying an appalling and, what does he say, horrible thing has happened. Uh, maybe we can get people's attention one way or the other. Well, what, what, what's so horrible, Jeremiah? The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule on their own authority. So the prophets just prophesy their own messages, and the priests um, are not following God's law. They're just a law unto themselves. And so you read that and you say, yeah, let's, let's grab those prophets and priests and let's just stick it to them. But then you read the rest of the verse. <laughs> it says, and my people, that's us, the congregation, my people love it this way. So the prophets are at fault, the priests are at fault, and the people aren't being victimized because they would prefer things that way. They would prefer the priests to do their own thing rather than God's thing, and they would prefer the prophets to do their own thing rather than God's thing. And so it goes right down to the people. And the whole issue here is the, is the people love things a certain way, and you don't have supply unless there's a demand. Uh, kind of like that verse for the church age in Second Timothy 4, 3 and 4, which says in the last days they will accumulate teachers for themselves to tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And so, you know, we see all these false teachers running around and we want to write articles against them. We want to boycott against them. Uh, we want to do open critiques against them. But the truth of the matter is, if, the, if there wasn't a demand for those false teachers in the hearts of the people, there wouldn't be any supply. So let's, you know, let's look at the people of God and why millions and millions and millions of dollars are spent, you know, all around the United States as I'm speaking, promoting false teaching. You know, if the, if the people of God all of a sudden left that and desired truth, I guarantee you everyone teaching a false message would be off TV, they would be off the radio, but the reason they're on there is because there's this great there's this great demand. They want their ears tickled. And so again, I bring this up because it's a condition of the heart. And so Zechariah here is dealing with heart sins. And then you look at the very end of verse 17, and God through Zechariah says, "For all these are what I hate," declares the Lord. So that's kind of a shocker. God is a God of love, but there are certain things he hates. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, says there are six things the Lord hates. And that's pretty bad. But then he like corrects himself. Actually, there's seven that are an abomination to him. The word actually is not in there. It says... These are six things the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to Him. Well, that's interesting. Let's, let's read the six, yea, seven things the Lord hates. Number one, haughty eyes. Number two, a lying tongue. That goes back to the perjury issue that we talked about earlier. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. 
I mean, I don't have to fill in a lot of gaps here. Number four, a heart. Isn't that what we're studying here? Heart sins. A heart that devises wicked plans. Number five, feet that run rapidly to evil. Number six, a false witness who declares lies. That goes back to perjury. And then number seven, one who spreads strife amongst the brethren, brothers. That last one there is what Zechariah is talking about in verse 16, where he says, speak the truth to one another, judge with truth um, for, for peace in your gates, verse 17, and let none of you devise evil in your heart against one another. I mean, why not devise evil in our heart against one another? Because... Of, of all these other uh, sins, it's one of the seven things that are an abomination to the Lord. Someone that goes into a community of believers and turns Christians against each other. Um, I've seen people, it's almost like it's their spiritual gift, if I can be sarcastic about it. They have an amazing talent, and it's not a godly talent at all, so I'm being somewhat facetious. But they can turn Christians against each other. They can turn pastors against each other. They can turn ministries against each other. Uh, I know of one person, uh, nobody here, um, that has a reputation everywhere this person goes of literally turning entire ministries against one another. It's, it's amazing that one person um, can cause so much trouble. And now we have all of this, uh, you know, these kind of gizmos where I can take my carnal thoughts and send them all over the world and say so-and-so said this and so-and-so did that and did you hear about this? And you could, you can just with a few tweets and a few texts and a few posts, you can, you can light a fire in the Christian world. And, and God help us not to be that way. Because God says he hates it. He hates it when that happens. Um, a good verse on God hating things is in the New Testament. Um, because we think sweet little Jesus wouldn't hate anything, would he? Well, in Revelation 2 verse 6, he speaks to the church at Ephesus. And he says, but you have this in your favor... You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So before he uh, gives a rebuke to Ephesus for having left their first love, there's always some things he tries to say about each church that are favorable. And he says, well, you have this much in your favor. You hate something. The deeds of the Nicolaitans... And you have this in your favor because I hate, I hate their deeds too. Notice that Jesus doesn't hate people, but he hates the sins that the Nicolaitans were um, promoting. So that raises an interesting question. What were the Nicolaitans doing that was so bad? Well, if you look up uh, two commentaries, you'll get eight opinions on this because nobody knows exactly what it was. The only guess I have is from the, the meaning of the Greek word, nikeo, which means to rule or conquer. 
to overcome, and then laetens, where we get the word laity. And if my understanding of that word is right, what the Nicolaitans were doing is they were creating a, a, a priesthood, telling the average Christian they had to go through a human priest to get to God. They were developing the clergy laity um, distinction. And Jesus says he hates that because in the body of Christ we're all equal. We have different callings, but positionally we're all equal. We're all part of the same body. And so, and by the way, we're all priests. Revelation 5 verse 9 and 10 says that, as does Revelation 1 verse 6. So, you know, here I am. I'm, I'm on an elevated platform. Look at me. I'm tall anyway. And uh, I've got my Bible out. And, man, I'm important, aren't I? But the truth of the matter is I'm just a teacher. I don't have any um, special pathway to God that you don't have. And if I were to start teaching that, gosh, you've got to go through me and my system to get to God, I would be sort of elevating myself over the laity, creating a priesthood. And I think that's what the Nicolaitans were doing. And Jesus himself says, I hate it. I hate that they're doing this. I don't hate them uh, as persons, but I hate this particular sin. So that kind of fleshes out a little bit. For all these I hate, declares the Lord. So that, quite fortunately, (laughs) ends that third um, oracle. And now we move into the fourth and final oracle as Zechariah is dealing with responses to their questions about fasting. So take a look, if you could, at verses 18 through 23, where we have a prediction of from fasting to feasting, verses 18 and 19. And that's followed by one of the most glorious uh, passages that I, know, that I know of in the whole Bible that talk about Jerusalem's exaltation in the last days. So you'll notice this first part, from fasting to feasting. Um, we have an oracle, verse 18, that's new. And then we have the prediction that one day they're fasting is going to be turned into feasting. Um, notice, if you will, verse 18. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying. So that becomes your literary clue that a new oracle is about to start. This is the fourth and final oracle uh, responding to the questions about fasting. So you'll see that literary pattern in chapter 7, verse 4. That was oracle 1. Chapter 7, verse 7, that's Oracle 2. Chapter 8, verse 1, that's the beginning of Oracle 3. And now here we are, the same pattern. Chapter 8, verse 18, Oracle 4. So that is how we came up with this outline here. Um, A good outline is not imposed on the text, but you look for the divisions in the chapter um, 
look for repetitions and things so that you'll give God's outline and not our own outline. So we move away from verse 18 into verse 19 where he gives this prophecy of the fasting is going to be turned into feasting. And look at the beginning of verse 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months. So there was some fasting, as we have talked about, that developed in the fifth and the seventh month of the Jewish year to commemorate the destruction of the temple 70 years earlier at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And you'll remember that we made reference to that when we were studying chapter 7, verse 3, the fifth month. Chapter 7, verse 5, the fifth and the seventh month. And basically what it was is every time that particular time of the year rolled around on those particular months, they would start to mourn because that's when they were commemorating the destruction of the temple. And their question is, should we keep doing this now that the temple's being rebuilt? And God's point is, um, you've missed the whole point because you're fasting the, you're mourning the effect rather than the cause. You're upset about the temple being destroyed, but you're not paying any attention to all of these covenant violations that led to the temple's destruction. And then it mentions more months here in verse 19. And so I think what was happening is beyond them fasting and mourning over the destruction of the temple, they were also mourning and fasting over the breach of Jerusalem's walls in the fourth month. Jerusalem's walls were breached in the fourth month, according to 2 Kings 25 verse 1. And Ezekiel 24, I think it's verse 2, if I have that down right. So they had one religious activity for the temple, and if that weren't enough, they started another religious activity to commemorate when Nebuchadnezzar breached Jerusalem's walls. So you'll notice religious people aren't really just content with one or two things. Um, eventually the religious mindset takes over and they're, they're doing things, you know, several times a year. And that's the kind of thing that was going on in the nation of Israel for 70 years since the beginning of the captivity. They're, they were mourning over the temple's destruction, not, not giving us a thought at all about why the temple was destroyed. So it was an empty ritual. And if empty ritual A wasn't enough, then they wanted an empty ritual B, where they were now creating a whole new ceremony of fasting for the breaching of the walls of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar 70 years earlier. And we know what God thinks about this already. God doesn't like the fact that they're dealing with the effect and not the cause. But then God says something new. I mean, what is God going to do with all this fasting? 
and this this morning and you know going around like the Pharisees were you know in the time of Christ with you know real sad faces what's God going to do with all of that well Zechariah makes a millennial promise and prediction in verse 19, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of God. Wow. I'm going to take all your fasts and I'm going to turn them into feasts. In other words, when this nation is restored and the millennial kingdom is in full swing, you're not going to think about mourning these things anymore. All of your fasts will be turned to feasts. I can't but help think of Psalm 30, verse 11. I think David wrote this, if I'm not mistaken. He says, you have turned my mourning into dancing. Wow. I found in my personal life that God does that. He'll take things that maybe a few years ago I was upset about and he'll give me a different way of looking at it or I can see his hand having worked subsequent and the very thing that used to bring frustration and tears, when you get the right vantage point on it, it actually, you look back and you commemorate it with joy. I'll turn your mourning into dancing. Uh, There's a prophecy, I think it's at the end of Joel 2. It says, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Uh, All the the time consuming and, you know, destruction. Uh, I'm going to restore those years with uh, prosperity. And that's the kind of thing that the nation of Israel is told here. So this is really neat because this is Oracle 4 and it brings us back to the initial question. Remember the men of Bethel? Should we keep fasting about the temple? And now Oracle 4 goes right back to the initial question where God says, you know what, I'm going to take your fasts and I'm going to turn them into feasts. I'm going to reverse your whole circumstances in my timing. And look at the very end of verse 19. They have to do something first, though. So love, truth, and peace. And what he's saying is, I'm going to do this when you go back to the covenant. Because the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai was given a conditional covenant of blessings and curses. So if you want to see the curses turn into blessings, which we know will happen in the millennial kingdom, then go back to the covenant. And of course, when the nation of Israel becomes the uh, beneficiary of the inaugurated new covenant, where God is going to take his laws and write them on their hearts, then they're going to have this internal Compulsion to obey God and the covenant language will be satisfied. There won't be any more backbiting. Uh, there won't be any more perjury and all the things God has condemned in the prior verses. 
but we'll honor his covenant. And as they honor his covenant, then will come the blessings. And once the blessings come, you won't have to feast anymore, uh, fast anymore rather. You'll get a chance to feast. And after he talks about that, then we have these predictions here of Jerusalem's exhortation. Excuse me, exaltation. They have their exhortation earlier. This is their exaltation. This is an explanation of why they're going to be so joy-filled in the millennial kingdom. So we have a prediction of their gathering, verse 20. The reason for Jerusalem's exaltation, verse 21. The location of the exaltation, verse 22. And then the preeminence of the city of Jerusalem one day, verse 23. So take a look at verse 20 and look at what God is going to do. Thus says the Lord of hosts. So that little expression is why we divided this final oracle into two parts. Because there's a literary clue there showing us within the same oracle, uh, Zechariah is going a different direction. Verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that peoples will come even the inhabitants of many cities. So it's like a a prophecy of a crowd um, being drawn to a location. Who's coming? Peoples, plural. Cities, plural. Well, what's the reason? Why is this crowd gathering? Verse 21 is the reason. The inhabitants... Of one will go to another saying, let us go at once. Look at that. Uh, they're, they're not dilly-dallying. Let us go right now. Let us go at once to do what? To entreat the favor of the Lord. And to seek the Lord of hosts. And I will also go. So the reason for this gathering is you have the peoples and the cities seeking God's favor. They're they're being drawn to a particular place to seek God's favor, which is a great idea for your life when you think about it. Seek seek the Lord. Seek his favor. Uh, what, What pleases God? What displeases God? What does God think about X, Y, and Z? Uh, When I do such and such, is God displeased or is God pleased? I mean, those should be questions on our minds all of the time as Christians. We ought to be constantly concerned about what, what pleases God? Uh, what, what will, what will create God's favor on my life? Very sadly, most people don't think that way. God is almost an afterthought. Romans 3 verse 11 says, There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. That's the description of the human race in general. People just, you know, God, I mean, God's a footnote. Who cares what God thinks? I want to make myself happy. And yet you have a time in history coming where people are just going to rush to a particular location 
because they're trying to figure out how to how to gain God's God's favor. So where are they going? Where are they going? Are they going to the Vatican? They're probably not going to Las Vegas. Are they going to Washington D.C.? Um, are they going to a tent revival meeting? Where, where are they going? Verse 22 tells you exactly where they're going. This is a millennial promise. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts. That's why they're gathering to this location. And there it is in Jerusalem. And to entreat the favor of the Lord. So mighty nations, peoples, seeking the Lord, not in a Gentile city, not in Brussels or Luxembourg, but in the city of Jerusalem. Now why in the world would they go to the city of Jerusalem? Because that's where Jesus is. Um, We know from Bible prophecy that when he comes back in his second advent, He is going to take his seat on David's throne in Jerusalem. Matthew 25, 31 says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, which is the Davidic throne in the city of Jerusalem. And that's why everybody's gathering in Jerusalem in in this time period. Of course, uh, there's many other prophecies that teach this. Isaiah 2, 2 and 3 says, Now it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief mountains and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will say, Come, let us go up to the mountain to the Lord, to the house of of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Zechariah is saying what Isaiah predicted earlier. Um, we'll be getting eventually to Zechariah 14, 16 through 18, which predicts the same thing. Then it will come about that any who are left of the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the Lord of hosts and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. It will be that whichever families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain for them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague which the Lord smites the nations who do not celebrate the Feast of Booths. So the the world is going to go to Jerusalem to seek God's favor, and those that don't want to go, they're in the time of Jesus in the kingdom reigning with a rod of iron. They receive immediate judgment. So there's no grace period. You don't comply, Jesus immediately deals with you because he's no longer at the Father's right hand on the Father's throne. He's now on his own throne um, governing the entire world directly in the millennial kingdom. And Satan knows it because when Satan is let, let out of the abyss, At the end of the millennium, what city does he attack? 
He immediately attacks Jerusalem. It says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So this is this rebel army that Satan is gathering at the end of the thousand-year kingdom. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the saints and the beloved city. Now do a word study on beloved city in the Psalms and you'll see it always refers to city of Jerusalem. Now this is, this is the Jesus with a rod of iron and it says at the end there, fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Immediate judgment. Robert Thomas writes at the end of the millennium, that city, Jerusalem, will be Satan's prime objective with his rebel army because Israel will be leader again amongst the nations. Satan gets one last attack. He immediately goes after Jerusalem because he has enough sense to know where the nerve center of the millennial kingdom is. It's Jerusalem. David Ellis, in his Zechariah commentary, writes... Jerusalem is no longer viewed as sim- is no longer viewed as simply the heart of Judaism, but as the center of God's dealings with all nations, and as a glorious realization of the ancient promises given to Abraham. This is speaking of the preeminence of the nation of Israel in general and the city of Jerusalem specifically. And then the very last verse of the oracle describes the preeminence of Israel in this time period. Verse 23, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Aha, I have another point in my outline there, because I'm looking at the literary clues. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is speaking of what Isaiah predicted Jerusalem being elevated over the nations of the earth. Now let me tell you the little theological game that's played by people today. This is how they're able to sign dispensational doctrinal statements and still teach kingdom now theology or amillennialism. Is they play this game of, oh, I believe in, watch the language now very carefully, I believe in a future for Israel. I believe in a future for the city of Jerusalem. No, beloved, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not teach a future for Israel. It does not teach a future for the city of Jerusalem. What it teaches is Israel is the future. 
and the city of Jerusalem is the future. Do you see the difference? Oh, I'm not a replacement theologian. I believe that there's a future for Israel. They don't fill in the details. And they just took the Bible and what it's teaching and they uh, marginalized it. So one of the progenitors of so-called progressive dispensationalism is Daryl Bach. And he has convinced everybody at Dallas Seminary that, oh, he's still dispensational because he still believes in a future for Israel. But when you get around him privately and you ask him what he means by that, what he means is Israel is just one of many nations in the kingdom. There's nothing more special about her than Canada or the Virgin Islands. And folks, that's not what, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say Israel is going to be just one of many nations. I mean, to, to believe that is to take all of these prophecies and marginalize them. So, you know, if I should drop dead of a heart attack, which could happen because my grandmother died of a heart attack about my age. I mean, I'm not planning on that happening, but, you know, I'm on diet and exercise to so prevent that. I get one hot meal a day, a bowl of steam, New Year's resolutions. But if should that should that ever happen and someone else wants to be your pastor, I hope you ask them a question. What do you believe about the future for Israel and Jerusalem? And if he, and I'm hoping it'll be a he, if he says, oh, I believe in a future for Israel, a future for Jerusalem, eh, 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 warning lights should go off. In which case you would respond, yes, but do you believe Israel is the future? And Jerusalem is the key city in the millennial kingdom. And he starts to hem or ha. You're dealing with someone that does not hold to the same doctrinal beliefs of Sugarland Bible Church, Chafer Theological Seminary, and Dallas Seminary, quite frankly, going back to when it was started. People are getting away with all kinds of stuff today because they're manipulating language. To say you believe in a future for Israel means absolutely nothing. John Piper believes that. And when you ask him what he means by it is he thinks a lot of Jews are going to get saved in the church age. But he's never cross-examined on his beliefs. And people say, oh, he's okay. He believes in a future for Israel. And I'm here to tell you that's not okay because that's not what God says. This is what we mean by the doctrine of preeminence. Where ten, think about this, ten Gentiles are going to grab the garments of one Jew in the kingdom. And they're going to say, we're going to go with you. Because God is with you. In other words, they're acknowledging the preeminence of Jerusalem, Israel. You wouldn't believe the hemming or hawing that goes on with these, these ten to one. Everybody tries to make it some mystical number. So, Pastor, what does it mean? Here's what it means. You ready? Ten Gentiles are going to grab the garment of one Jew. And they're going to say, we're going with you. 
because we know God is with you. Is it not interesting, Zechariah says, the nations in the last days at the end of the tribulation are all going to come against Jerusalem. Zechariah 12.3, they're all going to come against the city of Jerusalem. Zechariah 14, verses 2 and 3. But here, this is the kingdom and that's over. It's no longer a situation where everybody's coming against Jerusalem. It's a situation where they're all going to Jerusalem. And they all recognize that God has blessed Israel and those blessings spill over to the rest of the world because of Israel's preeminence. This situation here, uh, green countries are Muslim, red country is Israel, is a thing of the past. Where they're all riding into their charters and things how they want to drive Israel into the Mediterranean Sea. That's all done. Now the opposite is happening where the nations are all running to Jerusalem. Merrill Unger says, notice I've got to go back to 1963, three years before I was born, to get correct thinking on this. He says, with the Davidic kingdom established, Israel will be a medium of blessings to the entire globe. Sorry, doesn't fit with a future for Jerusalem. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Merrill Unger believed in 1963. One more passage here. And I've, I've never even been in a church where this passage has been, ever been taught, let alone read. But it's a millennial passage and it says, this is Isaiah 49, 22 and 23. This is what the Lord God says. Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set my flag to the peoples and they will bring your sons in their arms and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians and their princes your nurses. Watch this now. They, that's the Gentiles, will bow down to you with their faces to the ground and lick the dust from your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord. Those of you who hopefully wait for me will hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. I can't. I've been in church for a long time. I never remember any pastor or any church ever talking about that verse where the Gentile nations are going to go to the Israelis in faith with their faces to the ground, licking the, the, uh, licking the dust from their feet. Now, why is a passage like that ignored? Why is a passage like Zechariah 8.23 ignored? Because of the influence of replacement theology, where we as Gentiles think, well, we got it right and the Jews got it wrong. So why should they be elevated over us? And it feeds into sort of an anti-Semitic spirit. And so, so Zechariah 8.23 is never mentioned in church. 
Neither is Isaiah 49.23. Yet that's what God says. Israel, you have to understand this, is on a fast track. Deuteronomy 28 verse 13, where she will be the head and not the tail. She will be above and not underneath. Now, we as the church clearly are ruling and reigning alongside Christ's delegated authority as well. Revelation 5, verse 10. But that doesn't negate the fact that in the millennial kingdom, God is keeping all of his promises to Israel and he's elevating them over the nations of the earth. He's elevating them over the Gentile survivors of the tribulation period that repopulated the earth. And that's, uh, that's Israel's future. So we're finished now. See, somebody laughed when I said I'm going to finish chapter 8. They need to come up here and lick the dust off my feet. No. <laughs> So we finished chapter 8, and now the only thing we have left are the two burdens. First one, chapters 9 through 11, relates to the first coming. Second one, chapters 12 through 14, relates to the second coming. So in preparation for next week, you might want to read chapter 9. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth, grateful for your word and its ministry to us and uh, help us to have a right perspective and not be deceived by false teaching in these last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen.